Hello, and welcome to the podcast devoted to helping you win the race Christ has marked out for you. It's popularly thought today that human rights are the invention of modern secularism, which must protect these rights from oppressive forces like religion. But the facts of history tell us that the concept of human rights arose not from secularism, nor from Eastern religion, nor from the Enlightenment, but from Christendom. Until Christianity transformed it, the Greco-Roman worldview was that humans are born into a kind of natural hierarchy, that some men are born to command, others to obey, some to enslave, others to be enslaved. The father of the Roman family, for example, was born to command, meaning that if he turned his thumb down when his child was born, the child would be immediately drowned. Into this oppressive patriarchy marched Christianity with the radical idea that every human being, no matter how weak, handicapped, or helpless, had inherent value and worth and therefore justice demanded protecting. And nowhere was Christianity's assignment of dignity to every human being more obvious than in Paul's letter to those living in the capital city of the empire, Rome itself. This is especially true of the text we're studying in Romans 12 on the topic of spiritual gifts. Not only are vital spiritual gifts given to every individual in the body of Christ, But the very nature of some of the gifts is to ensure that personal attention and care are given to every individual inside and outside the body of Christ. These people gifts are those we examine in today's episode. for joining us today for Season 2, Episode number 41 of Mission Focus Men for Christ. My name is Gary Yagel. Today, we and our families often hear the narrative proclaimed that secularism, a world without religion, is the path our culture must pursue to secure human rights because religion fosters oppression, especially white religion. However, the harsh reality of history is that in the 20th century, many more humans were slaughtered by the atheistic secular regimes of Stalin, Mao, and Pol Pot than in any other century in history. The idea that secularism, a society without any religion, is the answer to the human problem that strong humans oppress weaker ones has been thoroughly debunked. It is true that majority culture Christians today do have a shameful record of both exhibiting and promoting injustice against minority groups, and we ought not to hide this massive failure of the church in America. Nevertheless, we owe it to our children and grandchildren to help them understand the historic fact that the very concept of human rights that pervades modern Western thinking is the result of the Christian worldview conquering the Greco-Roman worldview that those males born into nobility had the right to treat slaves, women, the poor, the handicapped, and the helpless like a piece of property, throwing them away if they desired to, like garbage. 
As Paul pens the book of Romans, in chapters 1 through 11, he proves once and for all the worth of human beings. We are so inherently valuable that the precious blood of Christ was shed to redeem us, to purchase us back from slavery to sin. As Paul begins to focus in the 12th chapter on what the Christians at Rome, steeped in a hierarchical worldview, most needed to understand to grow in Christ, he addresses the importance of horizontal connection to each other. The Roman hierarchical pattern of relating to others needed to be overthrown. So he writes, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of you has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. And then he goes into a description of the gifts. Paul wants to replace hierarchy in the thinking of the Romans by parity. The class-dividing idea that the contemplative life of leisure led by the rich while the slaves and lower class did the work was turned upside down. Every member of the body of Christ was to be a servant to the others. In fact, every member was given a gift that he or she must use to serve the others, lest the body of Christ suffer. Is there any more potent way to communicate that every individual has worth and dignity than this? Paul's teaching about spiritual gifts undergirded the biblical concept that every individual had value which slowly began to permeate the culture of the West. And there was another part of Greco-Roman culture that needed to be overthrown, the devaluing of emotions. Author Tim Keller explains, For the governing classes in the Greco-Roman world, the soul had been thought of as ruling the body, with the same authority as the well-born male ruled those inferior and alien to himself. Ancient pagan culture believed the mind and reason, resident in the soul, needed to subordinate the alien body and the emotions resident within the body. In other words, Romans saw emotion as weakness and inferior to reason. They believed that reason, what they thought of as part of the soul, was to rule over the emotions, what they saw as part of the body. In sharp contrast to this Gnostic dualism, Christianity values this physical body as much as the soul and our emotions as much as reason. The value that Christianity places on the inner motivations and feelings of individuals is evident in the giving of the last two gifts to be covered in this series, the gifts of exhortation and mercy. Even more scandalous to Rome than the church's egalitarian understanding of spiritual gifts was the value they placed on human emotion. Our inner motivations are so important to our design 
that God gives the gift of exhortation to help ignite our inner desire to please him. The rest of our feelings are so important to God that he gives the gift of mercy just to help us process our emotions by feeling understood. Let's look at the characteristics of these two gifts. First, the gift of exhortation, the exhorter, the Greek word being parakaleo. Significant help understanding this gift comes in realizing that this Greek word is the same word used to describe the Holy Spirit, paraclete. In God's plan of redemption, God the Father is the source of the plan of salvation. God the Son accomplishes the work of salvation, and God the Holy Spirit applies the work of salvation to individual believers. The exhorter's focus is application. So here are characteristics of those with the gift of exhortation. First, they automatically see how Scripture applies to everyday life. An exhorter's focus is on how life works. He usually loves the book of Proverbs with its cause and effect sequences. He loves discovering fresh insight from Scripture. Number two, exhorters like to mentor others, typically. The word parakaleo comes from para, which means alongside, and kaleo, which means to call. It was used for an attorney, the one you call to your side for counsel. Exhorters tend to want to give advice, to supply biblical principles to apply to overcome the problem or see the problem in a new light. Number three, exhorters are very attuned to human motivation. In Philippians 2.13, Paul commands believers, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. That indwelling of God is accomplished through the paraclete who works in us, granting us the motivation to pursue God's good purposes. The very concept of exhorting means to put fresh wind into another's sails. Sometimes exhorters breathe such motivation in by simply listening well. Other times it is by praising the way another honors Christ. Occasionally it is by casting a vision for what God wants to do through them. Sometimes they inspire by reminding fellow believers that they can't outgive God. Often it is reinforcing others' successes by reminding them that what they did honored Jesus. The exhorter is sort of the battery pack that the tow truck operator carries in the back of his truck to jumpstart Christians whose spiritual batteries need a recharge. Fourth, the exhorter wants to help others grow spiritually. That's his primary motivation. Paul, who filled the office of teacher, but always included long passages on application in his letters, shows the inner motivation of an exhorter. He addresses the Galatian Christians, My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. To the Colossians, he wrote that he worked day and night to present everyone mature in Christ Jesus. Fifth, exhorters focus on Christ-like character. The gift of exhortation, remember, is parakaleo. And like the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, 
the exhorter recognizes that the goal of our salvation is to be Christ-like, and that is the work of the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness, meekness, and self-control. So what are the vulnerabilities of those who have this gift? First, an exhorter may take verses out of context to apply them. He needs those with the gift of truth-teaching, didaskalos, to keep him from making such mistakes. Secondly, when listening to others, she sees the connection between what she is hearing and her own life experiences, so she can easily jump to her similar experiences instead of listening to the other person open up and share her story. Third, exhorters tend to see the full half of the cup because they are natural encouragers. At times, though, they need to confront the sins from the empty half of the cup. Next, exhorters want to give advice. Explaining relevant biblical principles when understanding another's feelings is often a better way to impart strength to them. Fifth, exhorters need verbal affirmation themselves since they constantly give it. In a sense, praise is their love language, so they have a special need to receive it. Finally, exhorters can fail to build a strong theological foundation or miss the deeper issues of the heart when they give advice. Well, let's look at the mercy shower, LAO, the seventh of the gifts listed. This Greek word means to feel sympathy with the misery of another. As clearly as Peter matched the word for the Romans 12 motivational gift of prophet, the Apostle John matches the gift described by the word mercy. So what are the characteristics of the mercy shower? First, she has excellent radar to sense what others are feeling and to empathize. She is the one in the body who brings Christ-like compassion. One scholar describing the word for mercy shower, LAO, writes, Grace describes God's attitude toward the lawbreaker and rebel. Mercy is his attitude toward those in distress. God supernaturally gifts some in the body of Christ to sense the distress and emotional pain of others so that they can tenderly bind up their wounds. The church has always been called to a ministry of mercy toward the sick, the poor, the homeless, the marginalized, those hurting because of the way life in a fallen world breaks humans. Next, the mercy shower's primary motivation is to care for others. This is the lens through which he sees all of life. Challenging Christians to keep loving each other is their highest priority. Listen to these words from the Apostle John's first letter. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. Anyone who does not love his neighbor is not a child of God. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Third, the mercy shower views fellowship as the goal of life, not just the means to an end. John introduces his first letter with these words, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. 
and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Fourth, a mercy shower thinks relationally, not programmatically. She is usually not goal-driven. She reacts to people being run over or straightjacketed into a program. John's gospel, which is often the favorite gospel of mercy showers, is not based on the storyline of what Jesus did, unlike all the others, but upon the I am statements, who Jesus was. Here are some other observations about John's unique gospel. First, salvation is described in relational terms, becoming a child of God. Only John records Jesus' prayer of John 17, where Jesus describes eternal life in relational terms. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Third, John used the word love more than any other gospel writer. And finally, John's name for himself in the gospel is interesting. It was not John the brother of James, or John the fishing partner of Peter, or John one of the twelve, his name for himself was the one Jesus loved. So what are the vulnerabilities of this gift? First, the mercy shower tends to avoid confrontation. Hostile or angry feelings directed toward one who confronts are amplified by the mercy shower's keen emotional radar making it hard for him to speak the truth in love. Second, she has difficulty being firm in decision-making and children's discipline. Her emotional radar, again, is so strong she can easily be swayed by their feelings. Third, he can easily be a rescuer who enables others' dysfunctions. The heart of the mercy shower goes out in compassion to those in physical and emotional pain with a desire to alleviate suffering. But suffering the consequences of bad choices is one of the primary ways that God teaches us character. Fourth, mercy showers are easily hurt by insensitive people. They can close their heart to thick-skinned people and resent those whose blunt words hurt others. Finally, those with this gift often have trouble being organized or staying focused on goals. Their agenda is caring for people, so they drop their agenda to care for the person who just crossed their path. Here are a few summary thoughts of the spiritual gift series that we've just completed, a study of the gifts from Romans 12. First, I do not believe, as some teach, that these seven are exemplary of the various gifts God has given. I believe every believer has one of these seven. I don't have the time in this podcast to explain why. I do believe most believers have strengths in several of the seven areas, but when push comes to shove, only one is their highest motivation. I also believe these seven gifts show seven facets of Christ's godliness. Therefore, as we pursue being like Jesus, we should be learning the strengths of all seven gifts. Also, over 40 years of ministry, I have found that understanding the differences in spiritual gifts is the most valuable teaching that I have ever received to understand conflicts between Christians.
Well, in summary again, let's look at one final picture of the seven gifts of Romans 12. If one with each gift were to visit a fellow believer in the hospital, here are the things each might say. First, I've been so convicted by Jerry Bridges' newest book, Respectable Sins, that I picked up a copy for you to read while recuperating. The gift of being a prophet. The motivation is upholding God's holy character and bringing conviction of sin. Another might say, I noticed that you are out of apple juice. I'm going down to the nurse's station to ask for more. That, of course, would be the wonderful gift of server, whose motivation is to demonstrate Christ's love by meeting others' practical needs. A third might say, I did some research on your illness, and I think I can explain what's happening. That would be the truth teacher. Again, the motivation there is being an error detector. This gifted person is motivated to help Christians base their lives on truth, especially the truth of Scripture correctly interpreted. A fourth gifted believer might say, I've been noticing how much Paul links trials to growing in Christ-like character. When we have time, I'd love to hear what you're learning through this difficulty. That would be the gift of exhorter, who is motivated to help every believer grow into Christ-like spiritual maturity. Another might say, if you don't mind my asking, does your insurance cover all of your expenses? That, of course, would be the giver, whose motivation is to help provide the financial resources for the work of the church. Another might say, I've rearranged some tasks and responsibilities at the office, and when you're feeling better, you'll be able to work from home. That would be the leader, visualizing what needs to be done and organizing, equipping, and inspiring a team to help him do it. And finally, what's been the toughest part of going through this for you? That would be the wonderful mercy shower, motivated to care for others and especially provide them emotional support. The biblical view of spiritual gifts reinforces the dignity and value of the individual that Christianity has brought into Western thought. When anyone comes to faith in Christ, he is endowed with a spiritual gift that he needs to deploy or other individuals will suffer. Unlike worldviews that devalue women, the weak, the handicapped, Christianity reveals the care that Christ wants shown to every individual who needs to be encouraged and feel understood in order to flourish. That care is delivered by every member of the body of Christ deploying his spiritual gifts. summarize this episode, the biblical worldview of the value of a human being is that every human is created in God's image, endowing each with inherent worth and dignity. The value of every human is underscored by the biblical teaching that when one is redeemed into the family of God, every single believer is equipped with spiritual gifts that must be deployed or the rest of the body will suffer. The inherent dignity of humans is further underscored by God's granting gifts to his church that focus on the individual's inner motivations and feelings. 
The Exhorter helps each individual apply Scripture to his everyday life and is skilled at tapping into the heart motivations that compel human decisions. The gift of showing mercy upholds the very un-Roman idea that our feelings matter to God so much that he has assigned one entire spiritual gift to help us feel understood. For further prayerful thought, number one, how would you defend the statement Christians should lead the way in shaping the culture surrounding them to value the individual rights and feelings of others? See your show notes for additional questions. Today's podcast, as all podcasts are, is available in printed format on my website, forgingbonds.org. Next week, as we look toward turning to our fall schedule, despite the possible impact of the Delta variant, we address the question, how can I do a better job of managing my time and schedule to stay focused on Christ's priorities for my life? This three-week series, Shaping Life by Christ's Priorities, looks at three disciplines that will help us keep getting back on track when life pushes us off track. Thanks for listening today. If this podcast has been helpful to you, don't forget to tell other Christian men about this podcast that seeks to help them stay focused on their mission from Christ by equipping them and inspiring them each week while they commute or work out. <laughs>